Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience, with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alison Cobb, the author of Plastic, an Autobiography. Plastic? An autobiography explores how technology, sprung from desire, draws all beings into its net and asks how to live justly within its grasp. In Plastic, Hope's obsession with a large plastic car part leads her to explore the violence of our consume and dispose culture, including her own life as a child of Los Alamos, where the first atomic bombs were made. The journey exposes the interconnections among plastic waste, climate change, nuclear technologies, and racism. Using a series of interwoven narratives from ancient Phoenicia to Alabama, the book bears witness to our deepest entanglements and asks how humans continue on this planet. Well, Alison, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, uh, as we're going through these unprecedented times during the pandemic, uh, could, you t- could you let us know uh, how has it influenced you and also your work? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm a little bit lucky because I have always, uh, well, for the last 10 years, I've been a telecommuter. Um, so I work for an, an, I live in Portland, Oregon, and work for an environmental organization that's headquartered in New York City. So things around my work didn't change too much for me um, around my uh, life and creative work and personal life. I've experienced a lot of the same chaos a lot of the rest of us have experienced with homeschooling a child and a partner who is out of work for quite some time. Um, just a lot of, I think, the the stress and distraction that we've all been feeling. I've also been very fortunate that members of my family um, and my friends have all stayed healthy. So for the most part, I feel I feel very lucky. Are there any specific strategies that uh, uh, you used uh, to maybe cope with some of the aspects? You know, for a long time, I've had a daily meditation practice. Well, I say daily, I most days. <laughs> and <sighs> so I've been... Um, really trying to pursue that and also a regular yoga practice. And then I make a point every day of going outside. And that I think also really helps a lot for me to keep, you know, um, keep my sanity and keep calm and connected to the planet. Excellent. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I was born in the state of New Mexico in Los Alamos, which is the town where the first atomic bombs were made. My father is a nuclear physicist. Um, And 
It's possible I just needed to rebel, but science was never something I wanted to pursue. Uh, I know the theme of this talk is of science in some ways, but you know, from an early age, I was I was really drawn to language and writing and the music of language and what words could do. Uh, but at the same time, I've really carried that background with me, and I've always written about science and technology and nuclear technologies and the legacies of um, our inventions and what they mean for the planet. So that's been an ongoing kind of obsession or interest of mine. Um, I trained as a poet. I got a master's of fine arts in poetry from George Mason University, which is outside of Washington, D.C. And I had the good fortune there of studying with two poets, Carolyn Forche and Susan Tishy. And both of those uh, poets encouraged in me a really serious engagement with, with history through my writing and um, global traditions of poetry as a way of bearing witness and living resistance um, to historical movements. Carolyn Forche is well known as the editor of an anthology, two anthologies actually called Poetry of Witness, which collect poems by uh, people around the world writing about oppressive governments or war, um, just bearing witness to the things that they lived through. So that was such a great education for me coming out of Los Alamos with that weighty sense of history and a history of violence tied to my own biography. I found ways of addressing that and writing through it. Mm. Were there any inspiring mentors along your way? Uh, you know, really those two professors were very inspiring to me. I think I've always looked to uh, women writers who are able, as, a, as a, a poet and as an independent writer, I don't have an academic affiliation. I work, as I mentioned, for an environmental organization and my creative writing is really a separate pursuit um, it can sometimes be hard to uh, feel a sense of my own authority and voice as a writer. And so I've always had, I've been inspired by women uh, poets and writers who find a way to do that. And some notable ones um, are Claudia Rankin, who's a Black poet and essayist who wrote a book called Citizen in 2015 that gained a lot of renown for um, articulating the Black female experience in the United States. Um, and then uh, Rebecca Solnit is another writer who's an inspiration for me, who, again, is also an independent uh, writer and scholar and who just writes on a really impressive range of interesting things. So I've had, luckily, um, many models in my life. Oh, that's some excellent suggestions for looking up uh, um, for, for the female poets. Hmm. Sure. So uh, can you just expand a little bit more how you came to work uh, in the environmental agency, especially as you don't have the scientific background? So uh, whether people can think if they can pursue a career in environmentalism, even if they don't necessarily study envir environmentalism in the university? Sure. Well, I can say it was a bit of an accident. So I spent three years getting uh, a master's of fine art in poetry, as I mentioned, and came out of school without any real idea of what I could do uh, to keep a roof over my head. And mm. 
was sort of reflecting, oh, in that time, three years, I have friends who got law degrees and science degrees. What do I do with poetry? Um, but I'm a very good typist is <laughs> one skill that I got from writing a lot in my life. And I just fell into a placement, a temporary placement um, at this environmental nonprofit, Environmental Defense Fund. And I have been there ever since for 20 years. And I am a writer for Environmental Defense Fund. And um, I've written for the organization in a wide variety of capacities. But I, I would say for people who are interested or pursue writing and the liberal arts, um, there is a lot of space for people with those skills in the environmental movement, because after all, the science is so critical. Uh, but ultimately, what we want to do is inspire people and move them to take action. And so the writing is just critical uh, to that piece of the work. Excellent. So you described yourself as a bit of a rebel uh, as a child. Um, so maybe you have a few suggestions to our early career scientists, listeners, or other young people on how to pursue your own interest and path? Hmm, that's such a great question. I think that I learned, well, I, I think one thing is having mentors and models is so important. I grew up in a town, of course, that was very scientific in its culture and its bent and its interest. And that really did give me such a deep and ongoing respect for science and the, the thing that I do in my career now really is take the incredible science and policy work that my colleagues do and translate it into inspiring language that compels people to take action. Um, but I didn't have many models of writers in Los Alamos growing up. Uh, when I went away to college is when I found those models and those sources of inspiration and those mentors. So that's so important because it let me see, oh, I didn't know when I was um, growing up and in high school that there was such a thing as a living poet. I never studied a living poet. I didn't know mm. such a thing existed. So really such windows and doors opened for me when I was able to meet people who were pursuing that path. So, so mentorship, I think, is is so critical. And then uh, I think the other piece, and I learned this later in life, uh, and it would have been a wonderful thing to know sooner is to really trust uh, my own intuition and my own sense of my bodily knowledge and awareness of the path I should follow or the steps I should take to really trust myself. Um, and maybe that's hard to get as a younger person because maybe it comes with time, but that's such important wisdom. So I would say, you know, your own path is your path and you on some level know what it is. And you can trust that even when all the things in the culture or around you may seem to act against it or speak against it, which is a thing that often happens to poets in our, in our US culture who are not particularly valued as cultural spokespeople mm. always. That's such a great advice. Perfect. So your literary expertise and personal insights culminated in the book Plastic. So how did you come to writing this book and why now? Yes. Well, I, I will say that my work for um, 
an environmental organization has deeply influenced and set the course of my life in a way I never could have predicted. And so much of my writing um, concerns these issues. Uh, My creative writing concerns these issues. And the way that the book about plastic came about is that really every day I, because my job is to process and understand the state of our planet and then communicate it to others. I'm always processing all of this information through my brain and body about planetary trauma and emergency. And I can tell you that a lot of it kind of flows through because it's so vast and so much to grasp. Um, but, But plastic kept sticking to me. The images of plastic that I'm sure many of us have seen, plastic pollution in the oceans, uh, plastic harming animals, marine animals was was sticking in my mind and really just kind of staying there. And this really started a, a long time ago, you know, 15 years ago, I started really thinking about this. And then mm. I was writing another book at the time, but it just kind of kept coming into my mind. And so finally, I I took it up as a, as a topic I really wanted to engage with and write about on um, 10 years later, the, the book is complete. <laughs> Good things take time to brew. <laughs> yes. So uh, one of the really uh, interesting thing about the book is the way you deliver your message to the readers. So can you tell us a bit more about the ways you, you, you approach it? Sure. Yes. You know, one thing I think that attracted me to plastic is that, you know, we we live at this time in our lives when our smallest daily actions like turning on a light and starting a car, buying food at the grocery have real planetary impacts that is so different from almost any other time in human history. And it's really a difficult concept, I think, for us to even grasp because phenomenon like climate change so exceed the scale and scope of an individual human. Um, But plastic, on the other hand, it's very concrete. And many of us, probably all of us, have an intimate and daily relationship with it. Uh, But it takes so many shapes and qualities. Plastic is so ubiquitous. I think, at least I find myself never really seeing it. It's just everywhere, but it's invisible. And so I thought if I could experience plastic as really present and visible, and I could link it to my own life, that maybe I could uh, help us all perceive and and have a visceral sense of these planetary Mm. shifts that are happening. Um, So that was kind of my impetus. Yeah, so there are different ways to reach uh, different audiences, as we've seen, and often conveying just the raw facts is just not enough to reach people. So do you see yourself as a science communicator? I do in some ways. Um, You will know from looking at the book that there are a lot of facts in the book, and it has a whole scholarly apparatus attached with an extensive set of endnotes. The book is very researched um, and grounded in in science and investigation uh, and in history, although I am none of those things professionally. And what I see as my um, challenge to myself and and what, what propels me is to take the information that we are all deluged with every day and, and make it human and 
connect it to an individual life. That was why I called the book Plastic and Autobiography, because I felt like if I could take all of these disparate facts and put them into the context of one person's life, of my own lived life, then I could really give a human meaning to them and help people care and also see how connected we are to these vast nets that are you know, our technology has made our webs, both the benefits and the devastation global. And, and so you also will know from the book that it brings in very disparate times and players. So there's, you know, a 19th century chemist in London and a, a modern day uh, black woman living in on the Gulf Coast in Texas in the shadow of a plastic plant. And I wanted to traverse all of that time in history to just show how deeply these connections play out in our own regular everyday lives. So for you, what were the most unexpected and uh, surprising discoveries that uh, you came across your research? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, well, I had so many, but I I think that's mm -hmm. a few of the core ones that really propelled the book is one of the things that got me interested and kind of was the thing that kept sticking in my mind was way back in 2006 in the Los Angeles Times, I read a news story about a piece of plastic from World War II that had been found inside a dead albatross chick. Um, your listeners may know or have seen images of um, albatross birds that live in the Pacific Islands whose parents... Um, bring them food from the ocean. They pick up flying fish eggs um, and other things from the ocean, but they often also have microplastic in them and even a lot of times macroplastic. And the chicks consume all this plastic and then they can't, they can't pass the plastic through their bodies. They can't get any more food in and they die. It's really a horrific thing. Um, so there was one chick this had happened to and there were photographers there who took a picture and actually took out every piece of plastic inside and oh. very identifiable things, including lighters and bottle caps and a toy top, uh, but also some little fragments. And one of those fragments had a squadron number from a World War II Navy squadron, a U.S. Naval squadron. I was so interested in that. And I decided to do a bit of investigating. And the surprising thing I discovered was that the pilot of that squadron was born and raised here in Oregon, where I am very close to where I live. So that right there, that was a life connection that I could pursue. I ended up um, finding his son and speaking to his son. Unfortunately, I found his son just weeks after his, his mother had died, the last person who knew this man alive. So I... I was a little bit of a slightly misconnection, but I, I spoke with the son and got photos of him and his story becomes a part of the book. Um, I also, in my research, by chance, very much by chance, came across a reference to plastic, an early form of polyethylene, which is now among the most common plastics on the planet. It's in your water bottle and, you know, just about every piece of plastic around you. But a very early form of that in the 1950s was used in the thermonuclear bomb. And it was actually one of the things that was critical to the functioning of the bomb. So there was another connection because I knew the stories of those men in Los Alamos who had had those incredible discoveries about the thermonuclear bomb. And so those two things were the hooks to my life that really propelled the investigation and the book forward. 
Oh, this is fascinating stories. I'm <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm glad. Are there any stories that impacted you um, on, on more of a personal note, perhaps? Very much so. You know, um, I, I think that when, at least I do this, when I pick up a published book and read it, it's so tidy and it's packaged with a cover and it, it's such a finished piece. It looks very orderly. But in fact, those of um, you listening who are writers will know that writing is a intuitive, chaotic, always unfolding process. And as I note in the book that a lot of times I was a bit lost and finding my way through the vast scope of this work and, and what to do next and looking to my own intuition and my own sense of, you know, what, mm. what the world was offering to me as a way forward. And uh, there was one day that I, I take, I mentioned I go outside every day. I take my dog for a walk every day in a beautiful park near my house. And one day my dog Quincy and I headed out the door and there was this large four foot long, um, piece of plastic from a, a vehicle against my fence. And it yeah. just struck me like, oh my goodness, there I had been thinking about traveling all around the world to see these beaches I'd heard about where plastic washes up. And actually I had gone to one in Hawaii and thinking about, you know, the stories I'd heard about people in, in Malaysia and Indonesia and Vietnam who who get our plastic waste from the U.S. and other industrialized countries and are, you know, facing mounds of it and having to process it. And it struck me, oh, I have this right here. If I look right in front of me in my daily life, here is all this plastic waste that to me before had become invisible and uh, or had been invisible. And so I started picking up all the plastic that I saw on my on my daily dog walk. And I live in a in a lovely, you know, middle class neighborhood in Portland, Oregon that's very clean and tidy. And then when I started looking, I saw plastic everywhere. And so I just started collecting it, taking photos of it, making a record, kind of keeping it. And that really shifted my vision of the world. I just started seeing plastic everywhere and in a way couldn't couldn't stop seeing it. Um and that car part in particular, I ended up bringing it inside my house. It is still here with me. It has lived in my house for 10 years. And it also became a sort of central character in the book. I decided to try to figure out where this thing had come from and how it was made and what would happen to it next. And so that is a major then um, investigation and theme in the book is that the origins of that car part. Yes, and I can really relate uh, to this uh, part, um, and especially uh, looking at the plastic waste around around your neighborhood. You would go out, you would collect it, but next day it just reappears often, and it's just never ending. <laughs> it's so true. I started to think of it like a tide. Um, it is the mm. same kind. There is a tide of plastic on land in our air. In fact, a research, scientific research has shown that, you know, tiny plastic particles we can't see are, there's fallout of plastic. It's sort of an invisible rain really everywhere. 
around the planet sent out by our, our dryer filters, which when we wash our plastic clothes, the little fragments break off. And, and so really we are living in a tide of plastic everywhere. It's a, it's a lot <laughs> to take in and mm. process. And so again, I was just finding my ways through understanding and embodying this reality through my own specific experiences. And the car part became a big part of that. So can you describe a bit what exactly is the uh, consume and dispose culture and why do we need to pay attention to it and counter it as well? Yes, sure. The consume and dispose culture, I really came to understand, and I don't think this will be surprising to a lot of people, um, it's really at the heart of um, the damage to our planet and what I learned about the plastic industry that I hadn't known is that waste is really an integral part of their business model from the very early days in the 1950s and even earlier when uh, plastic production was first really taking off after World War II. There were many um, innovations in plastic during the war. And then afterwards, um, all of this plastic production needed an outlet. And um, it was, I believe, a DuPont executive right before the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This executive from DuPont talked to a group of marketing experts and and they were talking about how soldiers are going to come home. The war is going to be over. Soldiers will come back to the U.S. and there will be a surge of buying, um, kind of like the surge of buying that people are anticipating with the end of the global pandemic. And we'll be able to use all of this plastic production to make products for people to consume. The problem with that and the challenge is that plastic lasts forever. And people who had been used to conserving during the Depression and a world war mm. were hanging on to their plastic objects and reusing them. And so the industry knew that they had to convince people to throw plastic away. There was one executive who said, the future of plastic is in the trash can. And so they did marketing campaigns about how, how cheap it is and how lightweight it is and how replaceable plastic is to shift people's practices. Because if something lasts forever, you can't convince people to buy more. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. really it was in the 60s when the industry came up with this innovation of the single-use plastic and, and really for packaging. There's the thing called the blister pack. We've all seen it. It's the clear plastic bubble that contents are stored in when they're on a display case in a store. That was an innovation in the 60s. And it was perfect for the industry because you literally throw it away as soon as you get home. And now this is so familiar to us, it al almost even doesn't bear explaining because we encounter it so often, but it's it's the tub that your salad lettuce comes in or your, or your plastic sushi tray, or it's everywhere. Single-use plastics are everywhere. And that was the innovation that let the industry continue to keep ramping up production and produce more and more. And, and really, we as a U.S. culture and, and, and in other industrialized countries around the world and now more and more globally have become well-trained that what we do mm -hmm. is, we, is we get products, we consume them, and, we, and then we dispose. And we don't give a second thought to it and haven't for, for many years, except, you know, now when the evidence is staring us in the face that this is not a way we can continue to live on the planet. 
Yes, and these investigations are really important to understand the incentive incentives that drive uh, that uh, that culture. Really. Yes. So we know exactly where to target it and implement systemic changes. Yes, that's such an important point, and I'm so glad you brought that up. It is not an accident where we are. It has been a series of deliberate choices. It is. I, I don't think anyone, I can't imagine anyone predicted that we would have this extent of global plastic pollution. Certainly, I can't imagine anyone would think that we would someday be breathing plastic particles and eating plastic particles all over the world, unknown to us that some scientific research using U.S. dietary guidelines has estimated that people eat and drink as many as 74,000 plastic particles every year. We don't know the health effects yet. The science is too new, but certainly that's not a good thing for a body that didn't evolve to handle that plastic load. So I'm not sure that I wouldn't think anyone would have predicted the scale of pollution we face now, but they certainly consume and dispose was a set of deliberate choices by the industry um, to ensure its own future. And those that pressure and those choices very much continue. Another very deliberate thing by the industry, by uh, plastic manufacturers, the chemical industry and and consumer goods manufacturers like Coca-Cola, uh, which is one of the largest plastic producers and users on the planet, very deliberately supported um, advertising campaigns, asking people to be responsible for pollution. There's a in the U.S. a very well known um, from the 70s when I was a kid campaign called Keep America Beautiful that was funded by those industry groups and it asked people not to pollute and put the responsibility on us as individuals, turning the responsibility away from the corporations, and also putting the responsibility, externalizing the costs for processing all this waste onto towns and cities. So we have our city recycling programs. And we feel very progressive in Oregon because we can recycle so much at our curb. We pay for it with our taxes. Our cities take that waste, but why should we pay for the waste and the plastic that comes from these corporations? When did that get decided? So it's mm. been, it has been a whole set of deliberate decisions that put us where we, where we are. And what's beautiful about that is it means we can change it. That's a great point. And does this fit in with the circular economy uh, idea? So the circular economy where everything produced gets reused is, is where we need to be as a society. And it's, it's, it's an easy thing to say and a hard thing to get to, but there is progress. And um, one of the things that I do in the book to try to illustrate what needs to change to get to a circular economy, which in some ways in our culture in the U.S. I think is hard to even imagine because it's never existed, is to get the mm. producer of the plastic waste to take responsibility of it through its whole life. So if you produce something that's plastic, that's going to last forever, they call it in the field, extended producer responsibility. You have to um, be responsible for ensuring that it either comes back into the economy and, and gets made into something else or that it is disposed of 
properly. Um, this does not exist anywhere in our culture. Manufacturers of, of vehicles with all their component parts, uh, the manufacturer of that vehicle has no responsibility for it once it leaves their showroom floor. Um, and so one of the things that I did with the car part is I did this investigation, took some time, finally discovered that it was a fender liner for a Honda Odyssey minivan, which is a very popular car in the U.S. You see them everywhere. They're really versatile and wonderful for families. And I think it's the best-selling minivan in the U.S. ever. Um, and, and I learned that all of the Honda Odysseys in the United States are made at a plant in Lincoln, Alabama. Um, so mm. in the last third of the book, I chronicle taking a road trip with my family across the United States with my trusty car part in tow. Along the way, we visit a bunch of communities on the Gulf Coast who are living with pollution from plastic plants and hearing what their lives are like. They bear the brunt of plastic at the beginning of its life. I had a piece of plastic from the end of its life. And went all through those towns and up to Lincoln, Alabama to take a, a tour was my excuse for being there was to take a tour of the Honda Odyssey plant, which is, by the way, a marvel of technological innovation, um, a very <laughs> clean plant. I don't know if you know this, but everyone who works for Honda, including on the factory floor, wears a white uniform. And the idea is that the plant is so clean and advanced that they can keep their uniforms white. Um, it's a zero waste plant. They they claim, although they give very little detail, <laughs> that they <laughs> reuse and recycle everything on site or have it reused elsewhere. Well, so I had the advantage of my nine-year-old child who um, uh, people always love a child and are more welcoming to a child. So she, after some back and forth, um, took it on to bring this car part, which was very big for her because it's four feet long. It draped around her neck and she had the carpet around her neck and she had her little stuffed leopard in her arms. And she walked in and had this sort of very open conversation with the representatives at the factory about whether or not that we found this carpet and whether or not they would take it back. Um, Cause we didn't know what to do with it. We couldn't recycle it at home in Oregon. We didn't know anywhere we could recycle it. We were going to be hanging on to it for the rest of our lives and bequeathing it to our grandchildren. <laughs> so would they mm. help us uh, with this burden? And of course, the, you know, bringing a piece of what is considered literal garbage into a factory that has no, no one is asking them to take responsibility for it, except for we as individuals was, they were very kind to her and of course refused categorically to take this car part. So the last line in the book is the woman from the factory handing the car part back to my nine-year-old child and saying, that's yours. And to me, that was such a freighted moment of that's yours, meaning that is yours for future generations. This problem is not ours. We won't take on this problem. It is yours, young child, to deal with. And that I just felt like was such a powerful emblem of where we are and, and what we need to change. That is so chilling to hear. <laughs> yes. It's, it's like an ending of a drama movie. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. That's yours. You deal with it. <laughs> That's right. Indeed. Indeed. But those are really legitimate questions uh, from the bright young lady because she is thinking about her own future. She is. Yes. 
Yes. Um, even myself, I do remember when I was a child, we used to use um, a glass uh, bottles, a big glass bottles to get fizzy waters from shops. So we yes. just go there, fill it up and pay for it. But that changed over time. So uh, nowadays you don't really get that. But uh, have you noticed that there has been a shift to this reuse uh, things for longer mentality? Yes, I do. I'm so heartened to see it. And you're right. You know, it's such a recent shift um, that we became so reliant on plastic. And plastic is convenient and wonderful in many ways and essential. It's an essential technology. It's plastic is in life-saving medical devices and, and, you know, it makes airplanes lighter, which is better for the climate and it makes cars safer. And I, I wouldn't want to say that any technology categorically should be rejected. I certainly don't feel that way, but there are specific uses of plastic, which make no sense from a design standpoint, particularly something that's disposable made of a material that lasts forever. And that's from a non-renewable fossil fuel, because as we know, plastic of course is made from natural gas and oil. That just doesn't make any logical sense at all. It only makes sense in terms of, of enriching corporations. That's the only logic that that supports. So I do love the increasing awareness everywhere about plastic pollution and this problem and people really committing to making change. I think um, what's what's not what doesn't work about this about that is that we we really need a broad national, international government level action. Because um, for one thing, a lot of times it takes a little bit more money and a little bit more privilege to be able to make choices not to choose plastic, right? We, reusable things tend to be a little more expensive. And we also just, it is important for us to take personal responsibility and to do all we can. And we also can't meet the scope of the problem with just our individual actions. So I am heartened to see all the awareness. And as you said earlier, systems change is really what we need. And I'm, I'm very excited to see all this building awareness has actually led in the U.S. to a, a new uh, piece of legislation, uh, a whole package actually of legislation that was, it was introduced last year and nothing happened with it. And then actually it was just reintroduced yesterday by one of our Oregon senators. His name is Senator Jeff Merkley. And this package is really the most broad reaching ever to address uh, this plastic pollution crisis. And it, and it has the thing that we were talking about, about extended producer responsibility. So if this legislation were to become law in that new world, uh, Honda would be required to take that car part away from my child and be responsible for it. Not exactly in that form of interaction, but they, but they would have to take the responsibility for what they produce. Um, the legislation also would put a temporary moratorium on new plastic facilities being built. Um, there's the other thing that's been happening and that was unfolding as I was writing this book is that there's a $200 billion expansion in plastic plants happening in the U.S. And the reason that that's going on is because oil companies, 
are seeing the end of fossil-fueled cars and trucks as electric vehicles come more and more on the market. And in the U.S., the Biden administration has committed to zero pollution transportation within the next 20 years. They Mm. foresee the end of the demand for that oil and gas. Projections about plastic use and consumption around the world are only projected to grow and grow and grow and grow. So they are putting all their bets into being able to to produce more and more plastic. They've built um, some of the world's largest plastic plants anywhere on the planet, all along the Gulf Coast, where these communities, mostly Black communities, communities of color and low wealth, are already living with an intense burden of pollution There's an area that has so many factories. It's called Cancer Alley because health effects are so severe there. And there's very little um, regulation that looks at the cumulative impact of all these plants. So the government looks at a plant in isolation and says, you're allowed to pollute this much. The one 10 feet away is allowed to pollute this much, but they don't look at them in aggregate. And so this would put a pause on this building in order to just make the regulations better Um, that's a very important aspect of the legislation. And then there would be a whole infrastructure also around recycling to make sure that recycling actually works. Uh, Many people may have heard that only 10% of our plastic gets recycled. A lot of things we put in the bin we think are going to be recycled actually don't get recycled. Mm. Um, They get sent around the world to places, as I mentioned, like Malaysia and Indonesia and Vietnam, where they kind of sit in a dump and nothing gets done with them. Or even worse, they get burned, which is very toxic to the local people. So this bill would would be a big shift in that, as you would not be surprised that the industry associations have already spoken their opposition to this bill with arguments that they usually use about economic impacts and being bad for jobs. Those are the same arguments industry is used about, you know, seatbelts when they became required in the 70s, that it would kill the auto industry. And so they're using those same arguments uh, because they know it's a giant paradigm shift, a huge paradigm shift to ask corporations to be responsible for the waste they produce. So we'll see what happens. But what I love about it is that this big awareness among people helps us all know that we can we can do everything we can do in our own lives. And then we can also speak up for the kinds of systemic change that we need. And you know, it's happening all over the world too, that um, you know countries are taking more of a leadership position than the US, in fact, in in banning plastic and trying to um, end the use of of single-use plastics. So I feel heartened about the change that's happening and more will come. Yeah, for sure. And it's such a global movement as well, which is so really inspiring to see. Yes, indeed. So uh, coming down from this national and international level of intervention as such, so what can people do to get inspired and actively engaged in this change on the personal level? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, one thing is, I think, don't lose hope. I struggle with that myself. it, It can all feel so overwhelming, I think. And when you hear that you think you're recycling things that aren't actually getting recycled, it can really just feel like a lot. And so one thing I I can say is that it really does make a difference what we choose to Mm. do in our own local ecosystems. If we're, you know, making sure that 
plastic litter we see gets picked up and put into a bin so it's not washing down a storm drain, that's one less piece of plastic. So that's an amazing thing to do when you can. You can't always do it. I pick up plastic, but there are certain things I don't pick up. (laughs) certain kinds of waste I avoid dirty diapers those kinds of things Um, so do what you can I think you know I don't I I don't say that you should you know completely transform your lifestyle and never consume anything and you know, never use any plastic because we live in the world and I use plastic. We all have to live our lives. But, you know, if you can um, avoid the the salad and the plastic salad box that will never be recycled, if you can buy some loose lettuce instead, if you can just make those changes, feel so good about them because our changes do add up. There are a lot of us. And if we say we don't want plastic in those boxes, then we will help to change the market. And and really, there are wonderful municipal city level changes that are happening all over the world. And, you know, we can support those by using our reusable bags and using our reusable straws. And then I think just really paying attention to what's happening with laws um, and supporting those uh, movements to change laws where you can. I know we're all really busy. Um, The plastics and chemical and oil industries are, of course, extremely wealthy, very well-funded industries with lots of lobbyists and lots of PR campaigns, and they will mount a vigorous opposition to change. So it's very important that our uh, representatives hear our voices too, Uh, about what we want from them. So supporting any laws or changes in your local area or at at your state level or your national level are also really important. Um, And then I I think the third thing, and this is so true in our age when we're all deluged with information and there's been a lot of talk about disinformation, Mm. I think is just trying to be aware of where information is coming from. Again, the industry is very sophisticated and they do have campaigns around things like the Keep America Beautiful campaign. They have a new um, zero waste coalition that is an industry funded thing. So just take a peel beneath the layer a little bit and see where, where the information is coming from and just make sure that you can trust it. That's an excellent message. So in your perfect perfect world, where and how would plastic fit in? Mm. Well, again, I mean, I, I, as I said, plastic is, I'm sitting here as I'm speaking to you, looking at my standing desk, which really saves my body. And it is a, com- a complete piece of plastic. It goes up and mm. down when I need it to. And that's a durable use of plastic that uh, will be around for a long time. And I feel okay about durable uses of plastic. Plastic is an important technology. Um, plastic in my ideal world would be part of a circular economy that you mentioned. So the plastic that we produce that doesn't have a long durable life would get reused. And the, the industry has again, sort of misled us that that's easily possible. It is not. The technology does not 
exist now to very easily convert a lot of our disposable plastics into new things. It's coming online, but um, my hope is that the brilliant scientists out there are going to figure out the way to bring this to scale and make it possible at a large level. Um, And then there would just be no single use. There would be no plastic thing that we use once and toss away. And I don't think that's a you know, we've become accustomed to those in the last few decades. But as you said, you remember before we used plastic bottles, I remember the um, the grocery bag, the plastic grocery bag did not exist until the 80s. And mm. so I grew up in the 70s, there was we used paper, it was fine. So, you know, we, <laughs> we didn't, we, we didn't use cloth, you know, reasonable, which is best. Um, but and and already that's a change, right? Plastic bags have been banned in many many places, and so we can make these little adjustments. We can do it, it and and I think that is going to be very possible for us. And then I think you know anyone who's manufacturing a plastic item needs to take responsibility for the end of its life, and that can have a lot of that can look a lot of different ways. Um, it can look like funding recycling programs or funding return programs um, so that, you know, we taxpayers and municipalities aren't funding our own recycling and waste programs with ever shrinking public budgets where money is in demand for many things. Um, That's, that's the real, I think, thing that will make a big shift in our society is just having those uh, manufacturers be responsible for their waste and pollution. It seems like it's, a, it's kind of an easy thing to say, a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes a lot of sense. So I hope that will happen. So I assume your world will not include the cling film wrapped bananas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I take pictures of funny, not funny, maybe sad things I see <laughs> about plastic in my world. But I'm amazed that that happens, right? I saw in an airport some, and this was long before um, the coronavirus, so it was not a hygiene measure necessarily, but I saw plastic cling-wrapped apples. It's a fruit that comes in its own packaging, like the banana. (laughs) We just don't, that exactly, we don't. Oh, and the other one, so I continue to take pictures of plastic. And the other one I see all the time is the... um, the plastic tooth flosser. Do you know what I mean? It's a little plastic stick that has some floss on it. All right. Yes. Mm -hmm. I see those everywhere. That's just not necessary. We don't need plastic Mm -hmm. for that. And so, yes, I think the thing about having, um, having corporations have to be responsible for the waste they produce is there'll be much more thoughtful design and that will be good for all of us. Excellent. Such a great message. (laughs) All right, so we've taken up a lot of your time. And can you tell us what are you currently working on, apart from taking pictures of plastic everywhere? (laughs) Sure. Well, I was so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. It was delightful to speak with you. Um, You know, this book I wrote, Plastic and Autobiography, is very um, prose and, and nonfiction. As we discussed, it's couched in a lot of scientific research, and I was delighted to write it over the 10 years of this on and off investigation. Uh, But I'm ready to return to poetry. 
And so I'm working on poems now. One of the things that I feel after 20 years in the environmental movement working on solutions is that all any solution that we came up come up with legislation policy anything really will be most successful if it's rooted in all of us having a changed understanding of how we fit in with the rest of the planet and in this i'm really thinking about you know european uh, legacies of um, ideas of individualism, which are not globally universal, but they're very um, Eurocentric in, in European cultures, where we see ourselves as discrete individuals who are quite separate from everything around us, including what we call nature as something different from humans. And in the US, that takes a very particular mythology about how as an individual you can lift yourself up by the bootstraps and succeed and you can set your own destiny um, and that's very empowering in a lot of ways uh, but it also ignores the fact that really in reality we are we are not discrete individuals we're like trees and like fungus and like coral reefs we are networks and ecosystems and everything that we do and our health and well-being depends on what happens in every other part of the ecosystem. And I think we can all agree that our planetary ecosystem is in many ways sick right now. And healing it, I think, really takes not just an intellectual understanding, so I can say those words and we can all nod our heads and agree, but a shift in our embodied understanding and our bodies and our feelings of how we fit in. And that's, I think, the kind of magic that poetry can do, that science writing and nonfiction writing doesn't access the emotions and the deep felt sense of how we fit into the world in the same way that poetry can do. I feel a lot of grief about the state of our planet. I also feel an ever-renewing joy about the beauty that I constantly am gifted to encounter in our world. It's spring now in Portland and the flowers are everywhere, and birds. And so I want to dwell a little bit through poems in that sense of grief and also that sense of joy and and just be there in feelings for a while. So I've, I'm taking a shift, but it also feels very related. That sounds super interesting. And yes, as uh, as you mentioned, this joy, that's something that actually moves change, doesn't it? Indeed. Yes. We can't act from despair. Despair is paralyzing. We mm. need we need joy and we need celebration and we need hope. And um I I think we need both. We need well, maybe not despair. We need grief. We need to feel um sadness and loss for um, this, our state in many ways, and that's okay to feel that. And then also we need those sources of, of galvanizing action, which are joyfulness. And I've learned a lot about joy from some indigenous writers. There's an essayist named Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a scientist. I believe um, she's an ecologist. Uh, she's a PhD um, ecologist who also is a beautiful creative writer. 
Robin Wall Kimmerer. And then there's also a scholar named Eve Tuck, who's an indigenous scholar, and they write about desire, how desire is a motivating drive in humans and joy. And I've discovered as I grow older, I just turned 50 this year, I've discovered that joy is harder than than grief and despair. Hmm. And there's more wisdom in it. It's more um, resilient. So I love being able to focus on that a little bit. No, for sure. Great message. (laughs) So where can our listeners find more information about your work, but also about the book? Yes. Well, the book is, uh, will be out on Earth Day, which is April 22nd. And it's available anywhere you buy books. Um, It's always wonderful to support independent bookstores. And if anyone is interested in pre-ordering the book, so you don't even have to think about it again, it will show up on your doorstep once it's out. You can go to a place called bookshop.org bookshop.org. And you can just search for my name, Alison Cobb, and the book will turn up. You'll get it at a discount. And some of your money will go to support independent bookstores all across the United States. So that's always a good place to buy books. That's great. Well, Alison, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure and a delight to meet you. Thank you.